At first, you think, this is all just a gag. Uh, to be? Not to be. Ah, sex door. But pretty quickly, you realize it's not a gag at all. Sure that we are awake? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Casey Wilder Mott has tried something pretty ambitious. He's been in Hollywood for a few years working in film acquisitions and at a talent agency. But like everyone else, he always wanted to direct. When he finally pulled together all the elements, he decided that for his directorial debut, he would do Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream set in contemporary Los Angeles. Theramus, you begin, when you have spoken your speech, enter into that break. And so everyone according to their cue. And focus. Uh, can you step back a little? It has the lover's confusion and the fairies. It has the rude mechanicals. But it also has Lysander as a fashion photographer Helena's a screenwriter, Bottom is turned into an ass, literally, as in 21st century, literally. It's all a swirl of color and scenery and language that's looking to take its place alongside Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing as a film that will redefine how we see Shakespeare in our own times. We invited Casey Wilder Mott to come into our studio in Los Angeles. He's joined by his longtime friend and co-producer on the film, Fran Krantz, who also plays Bottom. We call this podcast a very good piece of work, I assure you. Casey and Fran are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Casey, I know that you've said that Midsummer is really a movie about the caste system in Hollywood. Yeah. And maybe you could explain that, keeping in mind that a lot of our listeners, yeah. they aren't in L.A. and they probably spend a lot more time thinking about Shakespeare's Globe Theater then. So I came to Hollywood as kind of an outsider. And, you know, it is in many ways very much a company town and very much sort of an inherited business for many people and many families. And it, as a consequence of that, as well as all the money that's involved and certainly the fame and kind of the ego and the attitude and everything that goes along with that, there's been this de facto caste system which I would imagine exists in other, so I bet, you know, Washington, D.C. is not very dissimilar from that. But in Hollywood, what was really fascinating to me was that it had both this vertical component of sort of like fame and power and clout, um, but a horizontal component as well. Like on the far end of one side of the horizontal component, you've got people who are really accountants and lawyers. <laughs> My buddy and I used to always, because, you know, I'm sort of from this cast myself, you know, just like, dirt workers, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then the on behind the, ex- the scenes people. Yeah. yeah. And on the extreme other end are the sort of the artists. 
you know, you could be a sort of a very, very low level talent person. You could be someone who's like maybe just booked one guest appearance on one cable show or whatever. But in a sense, there's a quality that you have that Jeff Katzenberg is never going to have, you know. And how does all this relate to Midsummer Night's Dream? Well, in Midsummer Night's Dream, there is a similar sort of horizontal and vertical stratification of the people within families with, you know, between Theseus and Aegeus, between the women, between the couples. And so you see these, you know, these internal dynamics within groups, but then there's also this kind of friction and frission between groups. And the more I thought about that in the context of a Hollywood adaptation, a Hollywood reimagining, it really felt apt that, you know, the, the aristocrats are kind of like celebrities. Speak. Happy be Theseus, our renowned duke. Thanks, good Aegis. What's the news with thee? Full of vexation am I, with complaint against my child, my daughter, Hermia. Um, and the fairies are really sort of like artists. Come now, around the land of fairy songs. And then the mechanicals are like, you know, the, the kids who have just shown up who are really eager and just want to make a film. Masters! Is all our company here? You are best to call them generally, one by <laughs> one, according to the script. <laughs> okay. Uh, here is a scroll of everyone's names. First, good Peter Quinn's. Say what the script treats on, then read the names of the actors. So it's this exploration of power. And you have yeah. some other groups in there, too. You have the, you know, Puck is a surfer dude, so you have yeah. that counterculture element. And the fairies are these mystic free spirits who kind of uh, look fresh from Burning Man. Yep. You know, or <laughs> yeah, Coachella. Yeah, that was definitely something we looked at. <laughs> right? yeah. and, and you have Duthesius is uh, a Hollywood producer. Uh -huh. And then Bottom, you, Fran. Yeah. Uh, you have your whole theater troupe, and as you say there, AFI. They're the new guys. AFI. Oh, AFI. Oh, yeah. Athens Film Institute. Right, right, which is a little yeah. in joke in yeah, yeah, LA. It's yeah. the it's the well, uh, that was one of American my, Film Institute. Yeah, 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 right, right. But what I love so much about the script, one of my first sort of reactions or just kind of my emotional response was that having having grown up in Los Angeles and this is I call it home, I I, it didn't just feel like a perfect fit as an adaptation. It also changed the way I look at this, the city I grew up in. You know I'm glad I mean? you said that because that was my question to you. Did oh, cool. this immediately resonate for you and yeah. your idea of what Midsummer Night's Dream was? Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's whoa, it wasn't the first thing I thought of. It's funny because it's um, I'm not, this all sounds kind of grandiose. I don't want to you know uh, give him a big head or anything, but I I it's it's changed the way I kind of you guys think, are recording this right. <laughs> <laughs> it changed the way I sort of look think of the word and the idea of an adaptation, and that it it it's it doesn't just change the the work that you're adapting, the setting in which you're putting it in. That that there's a transformation there as well. So in this instance, Los Angeles for me. I, I see differently. You know, I'm able to see the caste system. I've, I've always sort of implicitly understood that. Um, but, you know, if I, I, speaking about the mechanicals in general, these aspiring film students, you know, they're all over Los Angeles, the aspiring actor, the aspiring whatever they want to be, the cinematographer, whatever. And I kind of see them all in this kind of new charming way through the sort of lens of this play. They all made sense to me, but then I got to Oberon and, and Titania. And that yep. was, they were a little harder for me to, to sure. place in this universe. You know, everyone else had that L.A. counterpart and filmmaker, yeah. lawyer and writer. But, and, uh, but I did wonder where 
what Oberon and Titania were. And then I read this interview uh, with you that suggested maybe they're characters from your childhood in Mendocino. I, yeah, I don't know that they're characters. <laughs> maybe they are characters from my childhood. It was certainly informed by, by my childhood. And I, I grew up in a very small, pretty remote, very kind of like hippie-oriented village in Northern California. And when I got to L.A., you know, it was a big city, and it was kind of uh, incomprehensible. And then one day I went up to Topanga Canyon, and uh, it really reminded me of the town I'd, gr- I'd grown up in. I mean, frankly, Topanga Canyon is sort of like is like Paris compared to Point Arena, you know, in terms of like the size <laughs> yeah, and, the and, ultimate sophi- and sophistication of yeah. it, you know. But it is definitely like way more off the grid than, you know, what you think of in the rest of yeah. L.A. But, well, let's talk about that because this is a movie that really loves L.A. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I want to let people who don't live in L.A. in on it a little bit because you do integrate this city into the, into the movie in it's almost like another character. And you have all these locations that are very familiar to us, and they're yeah. really like postcards from L.A. Like uh, there's a location, uh, poetry reading takes place outside of Echo Park Lake. And yeah. that's, for everyone listening, that's the lake with the with the geyser fountain, yeah. and, it, and it has swan boats and yeah. lily pads and hipsters sprawling on, on the yeah. grass, Lake yep. Bank and yeah. the cafe. And then you have the fairies at the end of the movie, and they're just grooving on that cliffside patio yep. of some mid-century home uh-huh. up in the, <laughs> I imagine, the Hollywood Hills, and that's yeah. that classic image of L.A. too from all those Jules Shulman uh-huh. uh, photos. So what were you going for and what did you want your locations to add to this production of Midsummer, which is also very soaked in a specific location? Absolutely. Maybe uh, of our imagination. So, oh my God, I, I could go the rest of this podcast just answering <laughs> that question. I'll try not We've to. We've got um, a lot of material to go I guess, you know, one really operative word there would be fairy tale. So, you know, I wanted it, on the one hand, to be kind of winking and nodding to Shakespeare and to the Shakespearean canon, but also winking and nodding to the experience of living in Los Angeles. And one of the things that I'd noticed in previous adaptations of Midsummer Night's Dream that hadn't been done is the films had never chosen to go to the woods to shoot the woods. And I thought that was really a huge oversight, you know, because nature the transformative, restorative properties of nature are such a key central theme to the play. And when you're liberated from the format of a stage, and you can actually go out into the woods, the fact that no one had ever done that before, I just thought was insane. And you can actually do that in L.A. I mean, there are you look at a map of Los Angeles, and there are actually like huge veins of green that run right through the middle of it. You know, and that's really part of the character, the identity of L.A. That you can get into real wilderness so Absolutely. quickly, right? Yeah. You know, steps off of off of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, and I wanted to remind people of that, and as just part and parcel of the larger, let's kind of look at L.A. through a more celebratory lens. You know, and and you know, going out into the Woods to do that was a was a part of that, and there is a real resonance and mirroring there. Yeah. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I see that. Mm-hmm. And Fran, you this is not your first Shakespeare adaptation. You were in Joss Whedon's. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you compare the two? I mean, what I, did you take away? Because you said that this has changed your idea about adaptation. That can really change. Well, that's the thing, and this is to, to take nothing away from what Joss did. I feel like he 
and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that film to me, I, th- I think it's beautiful and classy and elegant, and it's a really, really good movie. But I think he was the the L.A. was necessity. You know, he had this sort of two week vacation from the Avengers between photography and post production, where he kind of decided I want to make a movie, and I, I think he probably would have shot that movie anywhere. It was just sort of like I'm going to make this. Right, and he did I have, it in his house. Yeah, and it, it sort of he had a, a window in which he could do it, and that kind of informs the adaptation. I think he wanted to make a modern film, but I don't necessarily see it as has having any commentary on Los Angeles or the location, whereas what Casey did in this film is almost, it's completely in relationship with the location and the city and the environment, you know? Things base and vile holding no quantity. Love can transpose to form and dignity. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind, and therefore is winged Cupid painted blind. There's a real commentary on the the city and the industry and all these other things that that sort of speak to a kind of more, uh, honestly, I think a more meaningful adaptation. Let's talk about that idea of adaptation, because I think there's some real challenges and pitfalls in it. And one of the real pitfalls often, for me at least, are that the the special effects or the or the visuals can detract or distract from the text. And what I thought was really well done in your movie is that you managed to keep pretty true to the original verse, and we'll talk about how you depart from it a little later, but you add these visuals that not only don't detract, but they really help to clarify and illuminate the text for me. Thank you. You know, well... You're welcome, and thank you, because I have seen Midsummer Nights now. I've seen it uh, hundreds of times, sure. but 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 I'd say the first you know twenty times, the first ten times I saw it, there was always this point where I was like, I just don't remember who's who. I don't yeah. remember. I don't remember right. who who who's in love with who and yeah, who's spurning you. Yeah, I still feel that you. way. It's sort of, it, <laughs> well, you know, it feels like it doesn't matter, which is kind of yeah. I, I don't think is a good thing, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I understand how that it works. It can distract, but it can be it, distracting. You can just yeah. wander away, yeah. and then it's hard enough to keep track of language early on when you're <laughs> when you're watching Shakespeare or sure. reading it. Yeah. And what I notice with your visuals. That doesn't happen. And part of it is that everyone has an assigned profession. Mm -hmm. So it helps that, you know, oh, he's the agent. And, you know, Helena is a screenwriter. That helps. But also you do things, for instance, like you have Helena texting at some point. And the text and the visual of the text on the screen actually clarifies the language yeah, and, yeah. and uh, the language of Shakespeare. Well, texting so, and, and bitmoji Yes, icons, the emoji, right, right. Like, right. Stuff the bitmoji, like that, yeah. They are excellent. So I guess my question is, what criteria did yeah. you set up for yourself? Uh, Great question, yeah. For the visuals, and what snags did you run into? So off the top of my head, I'd say they were probably, this is another one that I could I could expound at at length, you know, but there, there's three that come to mind right away. One is that I wanted to make the, the ornate and opaque Shakespearean language feel more accessible. 
So that was, um, you know, I very much cribbed that from, I think, one of the iconic moments in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. And frankly, one of the moments that really, really makes the whole rest of the film work is early on when there's a gunfight and there's kind of a, a freeze frame and then a snap zoom into the barrel of the gun and you see it says Sword Series 9mm. And then, and that's like two minutes into the film, you know, and then just right away, they're disposing of this thing. Well, how are they going to talk about sword fights this whole time when they're fi- fighting with pistols, you know? So that kind of, so I tried to, you know, basically do an exact cover of that with the, with the Hollywood sign being Athens. Cause you have to, I mean, you can't get around talking about Athens the whole play. I mean, it's, it's, it's constantly <laughs> being discussed. But I knew I wanted to set it in L.A., so I had to kind of get people to buy into that conceit, and I wanted to use something that was visually iconic, instantly recognizable, like the Hollywood That's sign. That's so funny you know? because I thought of it as a little joke, like a little Easter egg, a nod. But really, you're saying it works on a couple well, it's different levels. It is also a little it's, joke. It's literally it is, to people who so have not watched the play. So is yeah. the Sword Series 9mm. Yeah. It's just a clever little thing. But when yeah. you think about How it a little more deeply, is, yeah. you get that it's actually like a real important kind of visual anchor. So that was one thing. The second thing was just wanting to lean into the filmic medium. And film is inherently a more visual medium than theater. I mean, there's incredibly beautiful, you know, production design in theater and you can do all sorts of stuff. But the visual, the textural visual nature of film is fundamentally different. Um, I love the, it's not visual, but the Mendelssohn remix, the opening credits. Yeah. Right. It's Mendelssohn, right? The Wedding March, the Midsummer Night's Dream. It's uh, no, it's Mozart, no, it's Mozart. Is the opening. Is that one. Mozart? Yeah, Mendelssohn. Well, Mendelssohn does another midsummer. He, it's late at the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the wedding. A, yeah, but yeah, what yeah. did you love thing. about the visuals? The remix. It's uh, uh, well, the music, the remix, the drum and bass that kind of kick into it, sort of uh, uh, telling you where we are. You know what I mean? Bring contemporary. Yeah. It's a contemporary sort of touch, obviously, um, that kind of sets the sort of mood and tone and, and also time of yeah. the movie. Yeah. Making it contemporary, that was the third thing, you know, so you talked about cell phones, you know, and I, I knew even before I'd written a single scene of the script, I knew that there needed to be, whether it was text messages or cell phones or Googling or something, it's like this needs to feel contemporary. A lot of people have sort of like bristled at that and said like, how can you have this beautiful, you know, love poem between these two people go take, take place between a text message? It's like, well, that is how a lot of people communicate Come today. On. You know? Yeah, <laughs> break up that way too. You know, yeah. yeah. So it, it, se- it seemed completely organic. Well, Fran, one um, visual I really wish I could erase, actually, from my brain, <laughs> brain pen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, maybe you do, too. I don't know. As bottom, <laughs> you guys uh, don't go with the donkey head. You just full-out commit, and I have to respect that. You literally turn your uh, bottom's head into yeah, yeah. into a... It's not just a butt, you know. I mean, I've got to say that is one of that is a really awful looking. Yeah, that's funny you bum. say that. Well, I mean, you can it's imagine like a flat dad jean <laughs> bottom. I mean, it's better looking than my butt, which makes an appearance. <laughs> uh, no, but it's um, it's funny you say that because you know film is a, a painstakingly long, tedious process, right? And so you can just imagine how much time was spent thinking about the butt, creating the yeah, butt, dealing with it on that. set. First of all, I mean, was it, it a group decision? 
Uh, well, I, you know, my experience, just having read the script, reaching that point, the transformation, you know, it hadn't occurred to me that how that he's going to have to deal with that. I don't know. Strangely, I just hadn't thought about what's the donkey going to be. And he established it's a contemporary adaptation, right? And to go to a donkey would have been a very like strange kind of step backwards, or that would have been an abnormality to the sort of uh, you know sort of world he had established. So was that what you were thinking, Casey? We got to yeah. we got to bring this forward. Yeah, yeah. This do you know forward? what I mean? I feel like it, a donkey would have been very out of place. That well, would have been. Like donkeys and anachronistic. Yeah. yeah. Well, the word donkey well, never appears anywhere in the play. Which you know? is strange. I never. And I thought I've I actually wrote an essay about this, a mini essay for the Folger. It's I'm sure it's somewhere buried on the website. But the someone was asking, you know, what what's something iconic about Midsummer Night's Dream? And I said, well, the transformation of Bottom. Again, it's always played as this big goofy thing, and it is right. It should be. But if if you get academic and dive into what's really happening there. It really is a lot about what's going on in the play about man and nature and beasts and transformation and sexuality is all tied up in that, you know? So I think being thoughtful about what you're going to do with the the bottom head, whether it's a donkey head or an ass head or whatever, is actually something that every director who does this play, they shouldn't just be looking for the biggest, silliest, goofiest laughs. If you can do that while you're also making sort of a thoughtful commentary about the rest of the play, then all the better, you know? There's a couple things like the bower and the donkey that, like, people who have seen the play many, many times are always kind of, like, waiting for, you know, how are they going to do yes. this? How are they going to do this? It's how like are they going to do that? It's like you wait for the to be or not to be. Right. Know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so I wanted it to be kind of shocking when it happened, but then also hopefully shocking, but then as Fran said, like, absolutely appropriate. Like, couldn't have done it any other right. way. And to your question about visual effects, you know, we were... This is a low-budget film, you know? Yeah, and, you know, when I met with, like, the costume... This is a paper mache bottom. It was, yeah. Well, the, you know, it was a meeting between me and Fran and the line producer who runs the budget and the costume guy. And we looked at a bunch of different stuff, and, you know, it was a budgetary consideration. It was a creative consideration. And I thought, if we're not going to break the bank on this, we have to just kind of go with the sort of, like, the really low-tech, like, goofy yes. version Amateur of this. theatrical. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. Right. And like yeah. hope that Fran, and I knew he could, can just pull it off through his performance. And Sherry Linden in The Hollywood Reporter, I think she captured it perfectly. She said... um it was something like winningly low-tech animatronics nice. and Fran Kranz's uh, game performance. You know, make this bold gambit work. Something well, like that. I, you know? I'm confident. Like, we all know Shakespeare can go lowbrow, so I'm very confident that he would approve he would have loved of the it, choice. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's what it was in its time. And I think this is sort of the fitting choice for this film. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, obviously, there's definitely some people out there. You sent me some tweet or some Reddit post, or some people just really have a problem. Hate it, hate it, <laughs> have a problem with it. Um, but, I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, I just wish and, I could unsee it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. And and there was Don't a lot of discussion you. about like how anatomically correct do we go? And and but I think I think it was right. I think it was the kind of low tech. It also it feels of the mechanicals world too. Totally. Do you know, it yeah. feels so like that, something that was like on that prop table, that you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, though, also just the trickster part of me was like, I was so excited to like go and have like a production meeting with like five people where we were like sitting around <laughs> and like looking at models right. of these butts and like, right. well, should should there be like hair on the butt right. or like how much, you know, what kind of like, you know, and it was like everyone, you know, these are all professionals. All the magic living, is made. You know? yeah. And I remember that. I just think like, oh, my God, like this is that my dream has come true. You know? <laughs> That's a real insight into you. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about language. 
because contemporary language uh, it does pop up periodically in, mm -hmm. in or all throughout the movie. I will condole in some measure. Okay, Francis Flute. Yet my chief humor. Thou shalt know the man. Yeah. By the Athenian garments he hath on. Yeah. I will undertake it then. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay, wrap it up. Masters, here are your parts. And I and I imagine you must have made some decisions or some rules for yourself as well about how to use contemporary language, how much, or how faithful you should stay to the original. So what, how did so you think about that? The case? play itself has been significantly adapted. A lot of the sort of the contemporary language use was really uh, confined to the mechanicals and this idea that there is something more kind of spontaneous and casual about them, you know, so they... For the most part, working with people like Lily and Hamish and Finn, and certainly Fran for that matter, like they're super comfortable with the language. They've done it a ton. As a comfort level thing, they don't need to like break into sort of modern dialect. Um, and they, they really did a good job of keeping that as an aesthetic that the lovers had, you know, whereas the mechanicals, who are also all like really great accomplished actors who have also all done a lot of Shakespeare, but I wanted them to have a different quality, a different linguistic quality, you know, so obviously they're all speaking in verse. But I told them, it's like, you know, don't be afraid to just say, hey, flute, come back here now, or like that kind of stuff, so that it had a more kind of, just a different texture than the way that the lovers spoke to yeah. each other. I'll meet thee, Pyramus, at Ninny's tomb. Ninus! Sorry, sorry. Wait, am I supposed to go that way? So when was it okay and when was it not okay? I left that up Be to the actors. Oh, really? Yeah, did, yeah. Fran, did you come up? Because I, I have a couple of examples that, that we pulled. Yeah. Um, I keep on going back to Helena, but I really liked Helena, mm -hmm. uh, where she says, I'm as ugly as a bear. <laughs> I am as ugly as a bear. Okay, here's what I found on the web for Grizzly Bear. No! And then... Oh, Siri? Siri. Yeah, Siri. Pops up. Yeah. Back to Athens. Siri, not available. No. <laughs> So was that a decision at all, or were you fine with that in the same way that you're fine with texting and you're fine with... You well, know, so that, the whole bear thing, that was, that was actually, that was rewritten several times. We, we had it as a music cue at one point, and then we couldn't afford to get the music that we wanted. The band Grizzly Bear. Yeah, Grizzly Bear, yeah. Okay, <laughs> playing music by Grizzly Bear, you yeah. know. But this is like really kind of in the heart of the second act when they're wandering on the woods and they're lost and everything's kind of like falling to pieces. And I thought it was a reflection of what's going on in Helena's mind at the time. That it just feels like everyone's out to get her. Even her phone has like turned on her. How came her eyes so bright? Not with salt tears. For if so, yours are oftener washed than hers. That And that leads me to my next question, which is about the audience, because that is always the question. Who, who's the audience for, for what you're doing with this adaptation? And is it just Shakespeare people? You know, how did you think about that? And, I, and again, I have to say, as a, as a Shakespeare geek, I really mm -hmm. enjoyed all of the Easter eggs you, yeah. you plop in, like like uh, Theseus yells at a dog uh, named out, Spot. Out, damn Spot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That one always got a big laugh. <laughs> how, can, you know, how can I forget that one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> how can you resist that? Yeah. yeah. So, well, I can so tell what, you, what were your thoughts? Now that the, the film is in release, apparently the audience for it is not very many people. <laughs> that's, but that's okay. You know, I mean, I, I knew that going into making a Shakespeare adaptation that, I mean, look, going to make any film, particularly an independent film, is going to be an uphill battle. And then when you say, okay, well, as a first-time director, I want to do a, an adaptation of this beloved Shakespeare classic. It's like, I knew we were like fighting the winds on that. But in my mind, the audience was as big an audience as possible. You know, I wanted it to appeal 
on the one hand to people like yourself and me and Fran, hardcore Shakespeare nerds, as you described. But I also really wanted it to, you know, like Julie Taymor's films, who I think are beautiful and wonderful and brilliant, but they clearly are like aiming at like a kind of erudite audience class. A PhD, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're very like, they're very heady and I think they're great films, but I don't think they didn't end up crossing over to have big, big support and success the way that like Boz's Romeo and Juliet did or, or, I mean, it's a much smaller film, but Joss Whedon's film, you know, you look at the numbers, kind of did the same thing. You know, it actually sort of like resonated with audiences. Interestingly, because it was Shakespeare language. I it mean, was, pure, yeah, as purely. was Boz's, you yeah. know. But, but what those two guys did was they took a very commercial approach to the filmmaking. Joss really clearly tried to make his film sort of an homage to 40s screwball comedies. You know, I mean, that's why it was black and white. That's why it was staged the way it was staged. And Boz's, I mean, everyone says it was Romeo and Juliet for the MTV generation. And I, I, you know, it really bugs me when I talk to people and they're like, oh, that film hasn't aged well. It just looks like a 90s film. It's like, yeah, it's supposed to look like a 90s film. You know, it's like it's like an iconic 90s film. It's a compliment. Yeah, I agree. You know, and if people say this about that, that about this film 10 years from now, that'd be fine with me, you know. But but I want it, you know, whether it was the contemporary (laughs) soundtrack or the really like sexy cast that we got or the very colorful visual palette that we were working with or a lot of the sort of more juvenile humor like the butt and, you know, out, out, damn spot and to be or not to be and kind of like knocking those famous iconic lines. I wanted through all of those devices to bring a broader audience in as well. Well, I thought you were asking about audience. One of the experiences I had when we were trying to get distribution, I just always assumed, of course, there's an audience where Shakespeare has been produced for over 400 years or whatever. And then you'd listen to these sales agents and public, and they're like, no one watches Shakespeare. Don't don't bring up Shakespeare. (laughs) There's no audience for Shakespeare. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't understand. Why are we still watching? Why is is Shakespeare being performed every day on the planet, and yet there's no audience? I didn't understand that. Yeah, But you sold the film pretty fast, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly proud of the film itself, you know, and I know Fran feels the same way and, you know, almost all of the core filmmakers and cast feel the same way, you know, and and the way it was released, I think it's like a minor miracle that we got the film released at all. You know, it ended up being a nationwide theatrical exclusive release. It was great. You know, I mean, that's as good an outcome as we could have ever possibly hoped for. At the same time, of course, you always want more. Well, Casey, this was your debut as a director. So what did you learn? What did I learn? I mean, I learned that it's really hard to make a film. I learned that it's really important to work with people that you trust and that you like. You know, I've Fran's heard me say this a bunch of times by now. Like, you know, finding your early allies and your early champions who have resources and have skills that you don't have and like getting them excited, I think is like something that they don't teach you in film school. But I just I realized having made this film that that first concentric circle of people that you're going to rely on to be really your partners. You know, we started making this film five years ago, you know, and here we are five years later, like still talking about it. So that's what I learned is like you need to have like those key people in place and you want that up and down the the organization. You want to like and trust everyone. But they're it's more important for the kind of the core team. Right. A repertory, like a repertory company. Yeah. Yeah. Fran, how was working on this film? really any Shakespeare adaptation, different from the other work you do. It, because people might know you from really uh, kind of big, bigger films like Cabin yeah, well, no, in the it, Woods. I or... get, you know, it's funny because, uh, yeah, certainly I'm, I, I get, I'm most known for working with Joss Whedon in Dollhouse and Cabin in the Woods. But with, so strangely, he ended up making a Shakespeare adaptation. So he's sort of like, you know, kind of, I kind of nicely got to, I got to make that transition sort of nicely. But um 
I, for me, this was a different experience because Casey, he brought the script to me so early on. I, I got on board as a producer. So I was, there was a different kind of, I was going to say emotional investment. I don't, I don't know what the correct word was. Just a different investment for me in this film that I think also, I'm sure it didn't take as much out of me as it did Casey. But you really, you care about it in a different way. It becomes a different kind of work, you know. Uh, I certainly, when I was on set, I was an actor and for the most part forgot about stuff like that. But, but seeing this movie from at least when Casey first delivered the script to me, it's caring about it in a different way as a uh, kind of co-creator and co-producer has been a, a completely different experience. And that one I'm I'm looking for again because it it's a it's a you have a different kind of ownership and it's you're aware of the complexities and how just comprehensive filmmaking is. Did is it, it make you want to do Shakespeare on stage? Oh, I'm dying to. I mean, I haven't. I don't think I've done a Shakespeare play since I was in college. I've never done a professional Shakespeare play, which is really sad. Yeah, mm. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm forgetting something. No, I. Uh, you're just waiting till you're old enough to do King Lear. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I like I said, I would I would do Shakespeare for the rest of my life on stage, film, TV, whatever. Mm-hmm. I really, you know, I think it's the best. It know? is. It's bottomless. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you, there but there are many all, people all who puns intended. Exactly. So <laughs> and and did you guys get any hate online? You were talking about some comments on Reddit. There or was something some. Else. Casey sent me something recently. I don't know what where it was, what site it was on, if it was just a Twitter post or something. Oh, it was an Amazon review or something. Yeah, it was an Amazon user review. It's something like that, but it was specifically about the butt. And it was just how sacrilegious this was, and how I forget what exactly they said, but well, there was it one. Was, it was so it was so bad. It sort of turned into <laughs> it sort a compliment. Of felt good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was one line yeah. that was something like, "I've been less worried about the decline of Western civilization in recent years, but then I saw this film." <laughs> <laughs> I would I go was see like, that film. I know. <laughs> I was so stoked. <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" Anytime you can inspire a sentiment, that's powerful in someone. You've done something. <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. Well, it has been so much fun talking to you guys, and I really enjoyed the movie. I, I hope it's on four billion screens at some point. Thank uh, you, Barbara. Thank you. We enjoyed making it, and uh, you know, we made it for people like your listeners. We made it for people who care about Shakespeare and, and want to keep the legacy and the work alive because it doesn't happen on its own. You know, it, it happens because of people like us. Casey Wilder Mott and Fran Kranz are co-producers of a film version of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, starring Rachel Lee Cook. Paz de la Huerta, Lily Rabe, and Hamish Linklater. After playing in theaters nationwide last summer and garnering a perfect Rotten Tomatoes score of 100% on its opening weekend, A Midsummer Night's Dream is now available on iTunes, Amazon Video, and a variety of other digital subscription services. Casey directed the film, Fran Plays Bottom. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, A Very Good Piece of Work, I assure you, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquart at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are we hope you'll consider rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get this podcast from. That helps get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help in increasing people's access to the work that we're doing here. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. 
Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.